0: Uh, welcome, everybody, and uh, to our podcast on negotiation. Um, and today I have a very special guest. Uh, um, today, uh, Rudolf Schussler is with me, who is a uh, philosophy professor at Bayreuth University, um, who spent a lot of time thinking about. Uh, about not only negotiation but uh, uh, life and what it what it means uh, what it means to be a philosopher to be a good philosopher to lead, uh, to, lead to 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 live a good life. Yeah? And today we will talk about uh, a super exciting topic. Yeah? Uh, but uh, before we before we move on to this topic, Rudolf, I would like to hand over quickly to you for a very quick uh, introduction.
1: Yeah, my name is Rudolf schussler i I'm a professor of philosophy at the department of philosophy and economics in Bayreuth Uh, and this also explains why I'm here, so I'm a philosopher who is cooperating with economists, I'm trained as an economist, so I'm interested in negotiations, uh, a philosophical perspective on negotiations and uh, some of uh, this uh, whole issues that are involved in these special perspectives you will hear about today. And uh, well, um, anything more I should tell about myself or?
0: Yes, absolutely. What I would be so the, co- the combination I've heard about uh, different combinations uh, um, um, of uh, a research, foc- uh, research, uh, research, focus and negotiation.
1: But philosophy is, uh, is new to me. So how did it uh,
0: how did it start, Rudolf?
1: It started with uh, getting a job, getting a professorship in Bayreuth in this uh, course of studies, philosophy and economics. So I had to uh, select issues that are of interest for philosophers and economists alike. And actually, uh, negotiation uh, is something I think that's quite natural, uh, uh, shared interest between economists and philosophers, because um, there's a lot of rationality, issues of rationality in negotiations, which Economists not touch, which are coming from philosophy. And there is also, of course, the question of ethics of negotiations. How do you deal with justice uh, at the negotiation table? And this is something uh, for which uh, philosophers are particularly well trained to uh, work on.
0: That's uh, that's exciting. So uh, your job brought you to negotiation. Uh, the combination of uh, negotiation and philosophy, I personally find uh, super exciting. And uh, let's get on with the topic of our today's uh, today's discussion, which is truth, lies, and Immanuel Kant. Yeah. Uh, so let's start with the first two notions. Um, um, how do you uh, how do we define truth? How
1: do we define lies? Yeah, truth. Um, there are of course. Like everything in philosophy, uh, hundreds of definitions of truth. But uh, I just, for, for this purpose, I choose the oldest and the simplest one. Uh, truth is just uh, uh, the um, convergence or uh, identity of uh, a, a sentence, a statement, and the facts. So if you say something of the wor- uh, about the world and that what we say fits the world, then what we say is true.
0: Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's yes. super smart. I'm not, I'm now trying to think about what it means. So, uh, um, uh, it, but who decides about this convergence of uh, of what I say and uh, and the world itself? Is it uh, is it me? Is it a, an observer? The society? Um, uh, how do we qualify something as a true as the truth?
1: Um, well, um, in in. In, in the modern era, uh, it's uh, for, for scientific truths, this is the, the standard, this is the standard for truths. Um, it's usually science that determines truth. Uh, one of the most famous sentences discussed about truth is, uh, snow is white. And snow, the sentence snow is white is true exactly if snow is white. Whether snow is white is not something traditionally thought to be up to decision of a society. It's a physical fact or it's a fact of perception and our biological perceptual apparatus. But there is, of course, there are some truths uh, which might depend on social factors, like uh, whether uh, this and this is a good policy and um, we can discuss whether there is truth in these issues at all. But uh, whether it's a good policy is, of course, not independent of what society does and what society thinks.
0: Okay, so we defined what truth is. So if I say snow is black, is that a lie?
1: No, Um, it's only a lie if you uh, believe uh, that uh, snow is white. If you believe that snow is black and you say snow is black and that's not true, uh, then you don't lie. You just uh, utter a wrong sentence. You utter a falsehood. And uttering a falsehood is not uh, sufficient for lying. Usually you have you need to know that you say something that's false in order to lie. A lie is uh, a false sentence you utter while knowing that it is false.
0: Okay, so I have to know that snow is, is white and then if I say it's black, then it's a lie.
1: That would... Uh, many people would say that's a lie. Some people also require that you try to mislead somebody uh, in order to tell a lie. But uh, in simple definitions of lies, it's just uh, a falsehood you utter uh, conscious about its falsehood.
0: Okay, super exciting. So I remember reading once uh, Paul Ekman, who, uh, who is uh, probably one of the most famous researchers when it comes to uh, um, uh, lie detection. Uh, a scientist, uh, a scientist who spent uh, many, many years studying um, studying cues to deceit. And uh, uh, if I remember correctly, the first fifty pages of his book, which is probably somewhere uh, somewhere behind me, uh, uh, he talks about uh, about counterfactual statements, which are actually not considered a lie. Such as, for example, uh, such as for example, I think he he, he mentions actors. Right. Obviously, when uh, when Leonardo DiCaprio says, "Hey," uh, uh, as Romeo playing Romeo says to Claire Danes playing Juliet, uh, "Juliet, I love you," right? Probably he doesn't mean that he loves Claire Danes, right? So it's a it's a uh, it's a clearly counterfactual statement which he doesn't believe in. But still, we would probably not classify it as a lie. Or what do you think, Rudolph? Would we or would we not?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, uh, there's uh, there are lots of, lots of complications in defining uh, what is a lie and then uh, clarifying cases about lying. I would agree with Ekman that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio is not lying because he's playing a role. Usually we lie only if we uh, declare a falsehood in uh, like straight uh, social uh, uh, communication and interaction. So, uh, if you play roles, uh, even uh, if we just uh, say something, a polite uh, uh, sentence, uh, how is it? Uh, and you say, uh, everything's okay. Uh, and it's not really okay for you. It's not clear whether we should say uh, this is a lie because nobody expects this to be a, a statement about my true state of affairs. So... Um, these kinds of mutual expectations play a role. So uh, and this uh, goes to the core of the difficulty of using communication, deceptive communication or lies in negotiations. Uh, um, It's not clear. Different people classify lies in different ways. And this makes it very, very difficult because you might be uh, called a liar. Also, from your point of view, you didn't lie at all. You didn't intend to lie and you didn't lie in your point of view. There is... Even a famous example of Immanuel Kant in this respect, and uh, still other people might think might think, uh, might think uh, you're a liar, and they may hold you responsible for lying.
0: Got it. All right. So uh, you've mentioned already Immanuel Kant and uh, negotiations. So let's start. Let's move over to him. Yeah, uh, a super interesting personality. Uh, in preparing while preparing for our discussion, uh, had a pleasure to uh, get into uh, the depths of his biography.
1: Um, but uh, do you think he's ever, has he ever lied? What do you think? I, I think so. From my point of view, it was a lie, but he, uh, he is adamant that he wasn't lying. So he says he, he wasn't lying, but uh, the kind of trickery he used uh, is usually, I think, by most people considered a lie. But he okay. said he, he gave a promise never to talk about theology or write about th- uh, theology, to be correct, uh, again uh, to uh, his majesty, uh, uh, Frederick William III of Prussia. And then uh, he wrote about theology after the death of Frederick William. And he said, I didn't lie because I made his promise to, uh, 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 to his majesty. And after his majesty's death, uh, the promise is no longer valid. But he promised never again to write about theology, and he did. And so most people would consider this uh, as dishonest or a kind of lie or broken promise, but Kant didn't. Okay, so we established that
0: uh, that he did lie. So, how about his categorical imperative, uh, right? Uh, uh, what could you maybe explain to us uh, what it means and uh, what connection there is between a cate- a categorical imperative and uh,
1: and uh, Kantian negotiation? Um, the first point is categorical imperative is of course uh, for <laughs> a short explanation here um uh, very difficult to explain uh, so that you understand its application its basic formula is quite simple it's uh always act according to a maxim that you can will to be a universal law so uh simplified is first uh, he's not talking about actions he's not talking about single action he's talking about maxims or rules of actions so you take yourself a rule to follow and this rule must be uh, 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 it must be possible to have this rule as a universal law, so everybody must be able to follow this rule. And if you pick a rule that uh, not everybody can follow, uh, you act immorally according to to Kant. And for example, he says a rule of lying, a rule of. Uh, untruth is not uh, universalizable, it's not uh, you cannot will it as a universal law, why? If everybody lied, uh, nobody would trust uh, the word of another person, we couldn't communicate, all our uh, human communication would break down, and that's at least what he thinks, what he says, and so lies uh, cannot be willed, uh, a maxim of lying, a rule of lying in certain situations uh, cannot be willed as a universal law.
0: So, what is uh, what are the examples of universal laws? Would you say, like the golden rule, would be would it be something that is universal, under, universally understood, you know, across ethical or moral, or religious context uh, in a similar way? Would that would that be something that he meant uh, by universal law and categorical
1: imperative? Uh, the golden rule is a simplified version of it, and most people, for most people, it would suffice. But uh, actually, um, the the golden rule is very old uh, in in all cultures. Whether you you look at Chinese culture, Indian culture, Islam, or Christian culture, or even ancient Greek culture before that, uh, you you find the golden rule. But uh, it's not exactly the categorical imperative because um, you see, if you say, uh, "Don't do to others uh, what you don't uh, them uh, to do to you," uh, if I'm a boxer. For example, um, um, I, I could punch your nose just because I don't mind you punching back. And yeah. that's not what uh, Kant thought uh, is universalizable. It's it's rather we should uh, choose maxims that can everybody from their own perspective will as a law. Not only the boxers, but also those who uh, don't like violence. Mm-hmm. So, so the golden rule is a bit unclear about uh, whether... Um, what you like to do to others and uh, like to be done to yourself can be universalized most people would think no we cannot go around and punch each other even uh, if you like to be pun- or, or like to be in in, in brawls or fist fights uh, ourselves
0: so um, yes, uh, that, that, uh, I understand this. So, uh, what are the other? Ex- I, I thought of, this would be this would this would be the most generic example of something uh, something that would qualify as a as a categorical imperative. If not golden rule, what would be an example of something that you know is universally understood as a as a as a as a as a as a moral standard?
1: Um. Well, it's, it's these kinds of uh, strict rules that Kant envisions. I mean, uh, in his time, uh, the rule don't lie was a very strict rule. Not only in him, he's famous for having this strict view, lying is never allowed. But um, actually, if you look back historically, he's not alone. Uh, it was uh, a strict rule in Christianity for 1,000 years before Kant, and uh, he cannot be blamed for taking it as a strict rule because in his culture in the time he lived it was still coming from christianity whether it's protestant or catholic it doesn't matter in this respect but uh, it was still uh, officially in theology in moral theology uh, considered a strict rule we wouldn't consider it very strict i mean uh, the standard case uh, would would it uh, would we be allowed to lie just to save a human life an innocent human life most of us would say yes, yes. but in Kant's time these cases were discussed and many people said no it's not allowed And the other point is, uh, what we would consider a strict rule is, uh, never kill uh, innocents for fun. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's something that's uh, practically accepted in all cultures worldwide. Mm -hmm. The killing of innocents is prohibited uh, and uh, it's only uh, under special conditions in war or in emergency conditions. may be allowed, but just for fun, for example, uh, no culture allows that. So we have these universals and we have these universal rules. But, uh, of course, um, the question is whether Kant's method uh, can deliver us these universal rules uh, for all people worldwide. And I, I actually doubt that.
0: Mm-hmm. so I, I remember uh, many many years ago reading uh, one of the most famous uh, quote from Khan you know with this uh, story heaven above me and uh, and moral law uh, within me right so, so um, <clears throat> if I understand him correctly, he suggests that uh, uh, that these moral standards are not only reasonable and rational yeah, can be rationally derived but also are part of our humanity yeah? is that too far or would you say, uh, Uh, That would that he would agree with this
1: statement. He would agree, yeah. Uh, As he understands humanity, it's the core of our humanity that's uh, that's linked to his ethics.
0: But is it true then across cultures, right? Uh, When we apply, for example, uh, when we apply this uh, um, uh, this uh, this assertion uh, Kant's assertion uh, Kantian ethics uh, to other cultural uh, cultural uh, areas or re- religious uh, 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 religious uh, uh, regimes or school of thoughts uh, um, would um, is there something equivalent to this moral imp- uh, to Kenshin a moral imperative in other cultures as well or is it something that is isolated you know 18th century Enlightenment uh, um, type of an assertion from a, some, someone who was brought up uh, in a strict uh, uh, in a strict kind of, uh, kind of, uh, very strict religious family. And, uh, then somehow developed this, uh, this notion of, uh, of, uh, morality being a part of us as human beings.
1: I mean, morality, um, if we just, uh, take it as a general, uh, uh thing, uh, I think, uh, it's, uh uh, very important in all cultures. All cultures have a certain have some understanding of morality that's very important for their society and their culture. But the Kantian, specifically Kantian kind of morality, I think is it's very European. In my view, it's uh, it's not 18th century uh, and enlightenment only, It's uh, it has deep roots in Christianity, as you can see with the prohibition of lying, uh, which is uh, coming from Augustine, so from, from the Christian tradition, but you don't have the same kind of understanding of prohibitions in other traditions. Even if you have a kind of legalistic religious tradition like in Islam, which is also very uh, law-based tradition or Judaism. You don't have the same understanding, and uh, in, in China it's completely different. It's more akin. To, uh, Confucianism is more like uh, a, a virtue ethics. It's closer to Aristotle than to Kant. And if you have a virtue ethics, you don't have these kind of strict rules. And even in Europe, I mean, it's not only uh, it's not China against Europe, but uh, you have traditions of ethics in Europe that are more like Confucianism than Kant is like. And Mm -hmm. so Kant is uh, quite special in this respect.
0: Yes, super. Uh, 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 Very, uh, very interesting. So let's now apply these uh, uh, these uh, the the result of this discussion to negotiation and ethics. Is it ethical slash moral to lie in negotiation?
1: I don't think so. Um, I think that lying in negotiation is um, uh, unethical. And I think that it's also a a big mistake. It's a a mistake of art. If you're a good negotiator, you usually don't need to lie. So what uh, uh, traditionally good negotiators in the tradition in which Kant grew up uh, use in order to deceive others is uh, misleading statements. It's uh, verbal trickery. And it's just uh, withholding information from the other side. And the interesting thing is that Kant discusses all these methods of uh, deception and withholding information, but he does not classify them as a lie. So they are not strictly prohibited. So uh, we we did this actually in a seminar with uh, expert negotiators, with people who negotiated for billions of euros. And they said uh, actually they could follow Kant's uh, ethics in negotiations, and they didn't know that they did do it. But they had the the same idea: you don't lie, you don't plainly lie, you just use uh, misleading information, uh, just uh, ambiguous words, and you withhold information from the other side in order order to just manipulate the communication. And this is done, uh, and this is all already considered somewhat unethical. But depending on the aims you have, uh, it's considered uh, as usable by, by these experts or was considered uh, usable by the experts we talked to. And that's practically what Kant says. Uh, he says, uh, you can have these kinds of semaphore uh, uh, system. Uh, withholding information, he gives green light. He says, information is your property. You can withhold it from everybody if you want. So you don't have to forward information to others. He even says uh, you have to be truthful in all what you say, but you don't have to say the whole truth. <laughs> so this is something he explicitly says, and uh, and then uh, he says if uh, if very uh, something very important is at stake, if, if there are great uh, losses to be made if you uh, do not uh, 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 just mislead others, and you might even mislead uh, in order to. Uh, To favor, uh, on the long run, truth, and that's what he said he did with the the Prussian king. He said he misled the censors. He didn't lie. He said I just misled them, but this the uh, uh, this aims uh, the aims I had uh, just justified the means in this respect. But lies are never justified. So he has this kind of uh, a scale Mm -hmm. uh, what you can use, and this is very practicable, Mm -hmm. and even. Many ethicists who do ethics of negotiations would say that's too hard-nosed. It's already too much uh, too, yeah. uh, and unethical to do this. So Kant was uh, harder in this respect than many uh, modern ethics of negotiation are.
0: Yes, that's true. And uh, currently, uh, together with um, uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Peter Kesting, and uh, and, uh, um, and doctoral students that we do research with, uh, we um, w- we are looking at a negotiation situation. We are looking at different negotiation beginnings, and one of them is this very famous sentence: "Yeah, uh, what's your best offer?" Right at the beginning, asking this question at the beginning of a negotiation, right? So, and uh, obviously. Uh, answering this question truthfully right uh, puts us in a disadvantageous position right because our surplus our economic surplus diminishes to zero yeah, if we answer this question truthfully so what would Kant say what would Kant uh, uh, answer to uh, uh to to a question
1: hey what's your best offer it, that's actually not entirely clear because he he didn't write about this specific problem. But there are two options how, how to understand him. The first option is he would recommend uh, to answer in a way that's, that is ambiguous. So um, not to lie, not to give a clear and precise answer that's wrong, and you know that it's wrong, but to be ambiguous, to say, well, uh, it has to be somewhat more than I paid for uh, this right. uh, yeah. uh, object, for example. Uh, Uh, The other option is to say that he um, that he uses the same explanation as with the servant who says uh, that uh, his master is not at home. Also, the master is at home. Mm -hmm. He says uh, the servant is the the social code of the situation is that nobody expects the servant uh, to say something about the real uh, world about whether the uh, master is really at home or not. It's just a convention that the the servant says something so that the person is not uh, impolitely turned away, but turned away in a polite way. So uh, Kant might think that in these situations, uh, everybody knows that we are not going to reveal our real reservation price at this moment. So whatever we say, they won't uh, take it as a statement of fact. And a lie would only be something that is socially taken as a statement of fact. So uh, this is the other option that even if we say i would never sell it for less than 1000 euro um, and you sell it uh, in the end for less than 1000 euro, you haven't lied because nobody would expect you to declare something about the true state of affairs at the moment when you say I wouldn't sell it for less than 1000 euro.
0: Right, so there are various, and and, and that's exactly what we're seeing in our research, right? That there are various ways of reacting to to the super sensitive question, right? So uh, uh, some um, ignore it, right? Just simply ignoring this question. Some use the boomerang technique and say, well, uh, tell me your maximum budget. And uh, how about you telling me the maximum budget that you have for this object, right? um, Some um, uh, use a... um, the technique that you described as a, a, a um um evading the answering the, or avoiding a, answering the question or answering a different question yeah such as for example um, hey this is a great object right and it's, pro- and it's worth a lot of money right or i paid a lot of money for exactly exactly like this but what we notice is that the asking this question has a an impact statistically on the economic outcome of uh, of the negotiation, and so uh, indeed, uh, uh, Kantian ethics and discussions about ethics, lies, and and uh, whether to tell it or not, uh, under what circumstances or circumstances it's uh, it's um, it's acceptable and not, it's uh, super important also for uh, the economical out- uh, economic outcome of our of our negotiations. So, uh, i have uh, i have uh, i have another another question which uh, somewhat dwells upon uh what you've just said on uh, the expectations of being or not being lied to and so uh is it so that lie becomes a lie in a society which doesn't expect any deceit and negotiation and remains just a counterfactual statement in a in a society
1: Yeah. Um, I think uh, that's true. I think actually uh, uh, that lies uh, and their um, identification depend on, on social norms and the conventions that exist in a, in a society. And uh, for this reason um, I think that it's exactly as you said, uh, that in a society in which certain things are not accepted, uh, a certain misinformation is not accepted, uh, things that other uh, societies or other people would declare as a mere deception or what Kant says, a simulation or a dissimulation, uh, turns into a lie. modern society, we don't use this language of simulation or dissimulation. I think most of the hearers uh, here... Is, here uh, might not be familiar with these terms but they were very familiar in the political uh, arena in this in the time of Kant so he would uh, say that simulation and dissimulation to make belief that something exists which does not exist and to make a belief that something does not exist which exists are not lies that's just part of uh, your uh, uh, political set of instruments to use these kinds of things like simulation or dissimulation but in a modern society, that would be declared a lie, and you would be sanctioned or uh, just held responsible if you use them in contexts in which most people don't accept them.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. So I think in one of uh, one of your. I'm sorry, I lost internet con- connection. I noticed that you uh, started answering the the question in the meantime, which is uh, which is great. Thank you so much uh, for stepping in. Um, um, I was I was thinking about um, about uh, about. Uh, uh, in one of uh, one of your statements, you mentioned that uh, um, that uh, it is uh, it is not a lie is not a lie if it's expected to be a lie, right? Uh, which means uh, you know if it's a part of the game like bluffing in poker, right? It's a counterfactual statement, uh, or there might be counterfactual statements, but uh, uh, that's what this game is all about. Yes, uh, um, so. Um, if we take all this, right, and we start to, to start thinking about, uh, uh, put it in a Kant, Kantian ethic context, yeah, would he, would Immanuel Kant yeah, be a good negotiator in our, in our today's society?
1: I think he would be, uh, uh, with his ethics, he could be a very good ne- negotiator. He prided himself to be Weltklug, uh, is the term in German, in the 18th century. So he... Uh, in English, it's uh, a little bit like street smart. And I mean, he he came from an artisan background. He he grew up not uh, very privileged, so he had to take care of himself and find jobs and things that since he was in his twenties. So uh, he was quite successful economically. He just invested well. Uh, he found the right contexts uh, to to make money with and to care for his money. So he was the kind of person who who would be a uh, a good investor uh, and a good negotiator, because uh, he didn't expect people to live uh, uh, a very moral life. He knew uh, one of his famous saying is that uh, humanity is made of uh, crooked wood, holds So he knew that people are not as good as they should be, and he knew how to deal with them. So, uh, so I think he he would be a good negotiator today.
0: And last question, since we are approaching the end of our uh, of our time, uh, although I would uh, I would love to continue our discussion uh, uh, for uh, for hours, uh, super exciting. Um, I read uh, while preparing for uh, for our chat. I, I, I read that um, uh, Kant never married. Was it because yeah. of the Kantian ethics uh, that he, <laughs> that he decided not to put it to the ultimate test, or why did not why why did Kant uh, not uh, marry um, at, at the
1: end? Good question. I mean, and nobody knows why he didn't marry, but uh, one of the um, uh, hypotheses is that he was uh, a concealed homosexual. So he lived for a long time uh, together with another man, so they, they lived as friends. Uh, there is no indication that, uh, that they had ever sexual contact, so it's not known. And uh, at the time many people lived uh, their homosexuality uh, not not secretly and uh, just uh, lived a very asexual life, but uh, probably wasn't very much attracted to women. That's uh, something that uh, might be the case.
0: Rudolf, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for uh, for being with us. Uh, I uh, utterly enjoyed our conversation. If we were, if you were to summarize, uh, to summarize in in one sentence, Kant ethics and negotiation, what comes to your mind?
1: Uh, he is less uh, otherworldly than many people believe. If you uh, just take a university course on Kant, he seems to be a kind of wayward, unrealistic uh, guy. If you look at his work and what he did in detail. Uh, He's quite hard-nosed in his political political writings and also in his practical ethics, and he's not otherworldly at all. That's Mm -hmm. what I would say in the end. And thank Thank you you so much for giving me the occasion to, to discuss this with you here. (laughs)
0: <laughs> thank you so much, Rudolf. It's been a g- great pleasure. So uh, don't lie in negotiation. It's not a tr- good a trait of a good negotiator to lie. It's possible to achieve great results like Kant did for or would do in our today's society, according to uh, Professor Rudolf Schussler. It's possible to be a great negotiator and remain faithful to our own uh, moral standards or universal moral standards as such. It's, uh, thank, you mu- thank you so much, Rudolf, okay. for being with us.